the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine, ahead of a new episode coming this weekend. Uh, It rounds off our trip back to medieval Japan when we talk about the Ashkaga Shogunate. And uh, that will be coming this weekend, but until then we've just got a little bit of a gap filler for you this week. Uh, A walk back into history, uh, and in particular the history of this very podcast. So we're going to go back and look at what we were talking about on this date in previous years in the podcast's history. Now, our first journey back in time will take us back to what we were talking about last year. And last year we were talking about a very epic battle between two great military commanders. It was the Battle of Ersuf and it pitted Saladin against Richard the Lionheart and was a very central and focal point in the Crusades. Saladin We spoke of Saladin during our episode on the Battle of Hattin. Saladin would not necessarily have been expected to rise to greatness when the Zengids sent him with his uncle to Egypt to influence the politics of the crumbling Fatimid Caliphate during the 1160s. The original purpose was to preserve a Fatimid regime that was favourable to the Zengids. But as time went by it became clearer that the best way to ensure that Fatimid Egypt was compliant was to undermine the ruling class and to take control. Saladin proved his worth as a capable military statesman while in Fatimid Egypt and undoubtedly won supporters. The vizier, who was the chief politician in Egypt, died, followed by Saladin's uncle and then the young Fatimid caliph, leaving the door wide open for Saladin to take control of Egypt, end the Fatimid caliphate and instate the Ayyubid dynasty, with himself at the forefront. Saladin was a pious man and an advocate of Sunni Islam. By conquest of Egypt, he would take the nation of Shia Islam over to his ideological preference, Sunni Islam. The Zengids 
may have considered this to be an extension of Zengid influence, but Saladin viewed himself as the most capable leader of the Sunni Islamic nations and saw no reason why he should bow down to the Zengids. Saladin may have had ambitions to create a Sunni Islamic superstate, and he would start by taking control of the Zengid capitals of Damascus and Aleppo, while Mosul became a vassal state. The Abbasid Caliphate would recognise Saladin and his extended Ayyubid territories. Saladin was in control of Egypt and Syria, but his caravans would have to travel through the Crusader state-held land of Ultra-Jordan. When the governor of Ultra-Jordan approved an attack of an Ayyubid caravan, Saladin made it clear that he would take his revenge. Saladin attacked the kingdom of Jerusalem and dealt the armies of Utremer a crushing blow that would open a door for Saladin to besiege and conquer many of the cities of Utremer, including the city of Jerusalem, which was almost helpless to defend itself after the disastrous Battle of Hattin in 1187. The remains of the kingdom of Jerusalem was pinned to the coast, and the loss of Jerusalem to Muslim hands would send a shockwave across Europe. Richard I of England When Richard was born in 1157, he was not the eldest son of Henry II, King of England, and his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. As such, he was not raised with the intention of becoming the King of England. Instead, he would be groomed to take control of his mother's domain of Aquitaine. This would only help to maintain Richard's strong relationship with his mother. It would be Richard's older brother, known to history as Henry the Young King, who would be prepared for becoming the King of England. But Henry did not want to wait to be king and revolted against his father, Henry II. Just how much of Eleanor of Aquitaine's influence came into Henry's revolt against his father is unknown, but we do know that Henry the young king gravitated towards the French king, Eleanor's first husband, Louis VII, who was Henry II's bitter rival. The fact that Richard joined in his brother's revolt against his father possibly demonstrated that the sons felt that they didn't want to wait for their father to allocate the wealth of the Angevin Empire and that they were ready to take their spoils sooner rather than later. Incredibly, Henry was able to contain the revolt and Eleanor was imprisoned by her husband to ensure Richard's good behaviour. Richard was never really too enthusiastic when it came to being told what to do. When his older brother, Henry the Young King, died of dysentery at the age of 28, Richard would become the heir to the throne of England. His father would demand that Richard give up Aquitaine to his younger brother John, and he refused. Richard would once again stand against his father and ally himself with the King of France, now Louis VII's son, Philip II. The situation remained so until the death of Henry II when Richard became King Richard of England. His mother, Eleanor, 
would be freed from her imprisonment. Now that Richard was the King of England, the nature of his relationship with Philip II would change to one of distrust, as they would both be concerned about the other's intentions towards their territories. Before Henry II's death in 1189, Saladin had taken Jerusalem and this prompted both Henry II and Philip II to agree that a new crusade was necessary. Richard appears to have been the most enthusiastic to join this crusade and the death of his father would not change his intention. Richard agreed with Philip that they would crusade together. Prelude to the Battle A strong-willed Richard set off for the Holy Land with Philip. Their journey was far from straightforward and took a number of months while they overwintered on the island of Sicily. Here, Richard fell out with Philip, causing Philip to choose to travel to the Holy Land on his own. Richard then moved on to Byzantine Cyprus, which he conquered before selling it to the Knights Templar. Richard then moved on to the coastal city of Acre in the Levant. Acre had fallen to Saladin and the Ayyubids in the wake of the Battle of Hattin in 1187. The Crusaders, under the King of Jerusalem, Guy of Lusignan, had been besieging the city since August 1189. Philip II of France arrived in April 1191, having headed off to the Holy Land without waiting for Richard. Richard would eventually arrive in June, and his arrival proved to be the weight that tipped the scales in the Crusaders' favour. The Crusaders reclaimed Acre, and Richard attempted to negotiate a prisoner exchange with Saladin. The negotiation did not go smoothly, so Richard executed all of his Muslim prisoners, prompting Saladin to execute all of his Christian prisoners. Richard's aim was the reconquest of Jerusalem, but Richard knew that in order to achieve this, that he would need to be able to accept supplies via sea routes, and due to this, he would have to head south and secure the port cities of Jaffa and Ascalon, which were two major Mediterranean ports that could supply an attack on the city of Jerusalem. This would involve a dangerous march south that would have to be conducted with care, strategy and discipline. A useful crusader stronghold along this route would be the fortified settlement at Asuf. So Richard would look to secure this position in order to plan an assault on Jaffa. Richard led the march from the front, leading the vanguard of the procession. It was not too long before Saladin's brother, Al-Adil, emerged from behind the procession and began attacking the crusader supply wagons. Richard had to stop the march and hurry back to rescue the rear of the procession, chasing the attackers away. After stopping over in Haifa, the march continued. Templars and Hospitallers guarded the front and the rear on this occasion. The naval supply boats were supplying the procession 
as it travelled parallel with the coast, meaning that it could only be attacked from one side. Those who were too weak to continue the journey were abandoned. Saladin's archers pestered the fringes of the marching crusaders, but the crusaders stayed disciplined in their measured march southwards, protected by their full body length chain mails. Richard periodically reorganised the ranks of his troops to prevent fatigue and allow those that had been exposed to archery attacks swap over to the comfort of the coastal side of the march. In the summer heat of August, the journey would not be one that everyone could survive. The Ayyubid archers may not have had a huge impact on the armoured infantry, but they would on the knight's horses, and those that fell were feasted upon by the hungry in their desperate will to survive. Richard would have his work cut out for him to maintain the discipline of his troops, especially as some were becoming increasingly impatient, begging Richard to allow them to charge the Ayyubids. Richard would do everything he could to maintain discipline and lift morale. Although it is easy to scrutinise the focus and morale of Richard's army, we should not forget the mood of Saladin's troops too. The laborious pace of the Crusaders' march had tested the patience and resources of the Ayyubid forces too, and Saladin faced similar challenges to Richard in terms of keeping control of his troops. When the Crusaders had to manoeuvre through the Wood of Asuf, an unusual area of forest, Saladin believed that he could attack the Crusaders under the cover of the trees. When Richard awoke on the 7th of September 1191, his scouts soon reported to him that Saladin's scouts were visible. Richard knew that an attack was imminent. The Battle of Asuf Richard organised his troops by putting the Knights Templar at his vanguard and the Knights Hospitaller at his rearguard. Different accounts give us a different perspective on what was going through Richard's mind when he was arranging his troops. Was it to ready himself for battle, or was it to continue his march? It is unlikely that Richard wanted to attack Saladin. His aim was the safety of Asuf, where he could buy the time to reinforce his army. Although some more romantic accounts paint a picture of Richard the Lionheart, bravely agreeing to attack Saladin's army. The most popular school of thought is that it was Saladin who attacked. His army was running out of patience and could not afford to allow Richard to reach the fortress at Asuf. Previously the Ayyubids had concentrated their archer attack on the Crusaders but now they would deploy their skirmishers for close quarters combat. They would be supported by the Ayyubid heavy cavalry and archers. Saladin wanted to break the discipline of Richard's ranks, but the Crusaders showed so much discipline that they were able to frustrate the Ayyubids. Specialist javelinists and mounted archers were also deployed 
to no consequential avail. The flanks of Richard's army did not break ranks. Saladin had the superior numbers and was not able to make a significant impact despite the diversity of skills within his troops, encompassing the various skills throughout the lands of the new Ayyubid Empire. Saladin was unlike Richard in the fact that he would look to avoid becoming directly involved, preferring to be a tactician from afar. Richard was always much more likely to be found in the thick of a battle. However, Saladin knew that his troops were weary after many days of waiting in the field for the battle and frustrated due to their lack of impact. So Saladin joined his son Alafdal in a change of focus. Together, they would lead an attack specifically to the rear of the procession where the hospitallers were stationed. Saladin was desperate to break the ranks of the procession in order to take advantage of his superior numbers and overwhelm the crusaders, but Richard was still able to inspire his troops to maintain their discipline and maintain their tightly packed ranks and even continue the shuffle forwards in the direction of Asuf. Nevertheless, the hospitallers were taking the brunt of the attack and their patience was wearing thin, as they were suffering losses and feeling helpless to prevent them. Their instinct was telling them to attack the Ayyubids, but Richard was demanding that they continue to close ranks and get to Asuf, which was now close by. The Templars at the vanguard were now on the fringes of Asuf. Finally, it looked like the goal was achieved, but the hospitalers at the rear guard were now completely surrounded by the Ayyubids, who had circled around their rear and were constantly bombarding them. Despite their pleas to Richard to allow them to retaliate, Richard insisted that the success of their march relied on the ranks remaining unbroken, despite the inevitable losses in the rear guard. The Templars were now at Asuf and began setting up their defences and encampments. And it just required the rest of the procession to successfully retreat into the settlement. The Ayyubids may be able to besiege Asuf, but at least the Crusaders would be in a defensible supply port. The leader of the Hospitallers was called the Grand Master, and his name was Garner de Nablu. He had sent messages to Richard to allow the hospitalers to attack to no avail and he even decided to plea in person once again to no avail. Now, with the rearguard taking all of the attack, the hospitalers could watch no more. They had seen enough of their worthy comrades being picked off without retaliation and their adrenaline and anger could no longer be contained. Garner de Nablu charged the Ayyubids and his fellow knights joined him in a rush against the enemy. Richard was horrified as his plan had almost worked but now it risked failure. Was the Hospitaller's act avoidable under the intense circumstances and did it jeopardise the entire operation? Richard's nephew Henry II, Count of Champagne, 
was an important leader of the flanks of the procession and had loyally maintained the discipline of the most vulnerable troops during the long march. Henry saw the charge of the rearguard and felt compelled to support them and so he ordered the charge, which Richard may not have endorsed but now with so many of his troops committed, Richard felt he had absolutely no option but to order his entire army to charge the Ayyubids, despite their proximity to relative safety. From a disciplined, defensive slow march, very suddenly the Crusaders launched an attack that hit the Ayyubids like a battering ram with their full force. If Richard was forced to attack, then he would give them everything. It would be the right-hand flank of the Ayyubids who would buckle to the pressure first. Some would begin to flee in terror, and many would fearfully copy this action, frightened for their lives as a result of this unexpected onslaught. Richard was in the thick of it himself, demonstrating to many the heart of a lion that would eventually give him his eternal soubriquet. Saladin desperately tried to restore order to his troops. Understanding that many had fled, he pulled his elite guard in close and attempted to restore the balance of the battle. But the fury of the Crusaders was too much and Saladin had to concede that it was too much to overcome. Saladin ordered the retreat and as the remaining troops fled, the Knights Templar fiercely pursued them from the battlefield. However, before his army could stray too far from the safety of Asuf, Richard recalled them and he would be safe to do so as Saladin and the Ayyubids had now gone and the battle was over. Two years ago, we just started out on our journey in Volume 4 talking about medieval times and one of the biggest things that happened in global history at the beginning of the medieval period was the rise of Islam. And we uh, we often talk about how the, uh, how the, the Arabs took control of Jerusalem and suddenly went right the way across North Africa and uh, Arabized uh, North Africa. And um, and we talk often about how they skipped over the Mediterranean Sea and uh, Islamized uh, much of the Iberian Peninsula. But uh, also, really, the, the nucleus of Islam and the Arab uh, world was in the Middle East. So it was important for the caliphates to establish a core base in the Middle East. And uh, let's have a look at how they did that. As we have discovered, the progress of Arab expansion across North Africa was disrupted by civil conflict within the Islamic Caliphate. It would all stem from the differences between the Rashidun Caliph Ali and the would-be Umayyad Caliph Muawiyah during the first fitna. The descendants of Ali are known as the Alids and were favoured by the Shia Muslims. Muawiyah represented Sunni Islam and became the first Umayyad Caliph, 
moving the centre of power to his own centre of influence at Damascus in Syria. There was a degree of discontent in Mecca at the centre of Arab power being moved northwards and away from the Meccan heartlands of Islam itself. We can also add the somewhat fractious Kharijites who were responsible for the assassination of Ali and opposed both the Alids and Umayyads, believing them both to be misinterpreting Islam as it was advised in the Quran. It is little surprise to learn that there was a second fitna. The Islamic Caliphate was a victim of its own rapid expansion and a lack of common infrastructure across the vast lands contained within it. We have already learned that Ali's son, Hussein, was unsuccessful in his attempt to dethrone the Umayyad Caliph Yazid, who was the son of Muawiyah. Hussein had made his way from Mecca, who were not content with the Umayyad dynasty controlling the Caliphate. Previously, the Islamic Caliph had been selected, but the Umayyads had introduced a hereditary succession which had brought Yazid to rule without selection. Mecca and Medina stood together in their opposition of Yazid, who they considered to be ruling the Caliphate in a manner not befitting of the Quran. They would persecute any members of the Umayyad dynasty still residing in the heartlands, and this was enough for Yazid to send an army to tackle those rebelling against him and his family. The Umayyads would defeat the Medinese at the Battle of Al-Hatta in 683, and then go on to besiege the city of Mecca. While Mecca was attempting to resist the siege, the sudden death of the Caliph Yazid proved to be a blessing for the people of Mecca, as the Umayyads now felt it necessary to withdraw. The Meccans would establish their own separate caliphate with their own caliph called Abd Allah ibn al-Zubayr. This Zubayrid caliphate would stand against the Umayyads, but they did not receive the support of the Alids who actually opposed them. So now there were three factions competing for supremacy of the caliphate. The Umayyads based in Syria, the Alids based in Iraq and the Zubayrids based in Hijaz. And that's without mentioning the Harijite fundamentalists. Incidentally, Hijaz is the name of the area of the modern country of Saudi Arabia that contains the cities of Mecca and Medina the Umayyad Caliphate had very quickly lost its central authority. The Umayyads and the supporters of the Alids continued to battle one another, but it would actually be the Zubayrids that would put down the pro-Alids before the Umayyads defeated the Zubayrids in Iraq at the Battle of Maskin in 691, before they would venture southwards to besiege Mecca once more. This time, the Umayyads would succeed in defeating the Zubayrids and killing the leader, 
Ibn al-Zubayr in the process. Now hostilities would die down as the Umayyads had resumed supremacy and the other factions had been debilitated enough to remove the threat, so the second fitna was now over. Apogee We can debate the largest and most powerful empires in the world up to this point, with the Xiongnu Empire having claim to controlling the most land. The Han Chinese would certainly have more people in their modern and urbanised settlements, much like the Persian empires. The Romans, on the other hand, were in control of many vast waterways and would have certainly have had the wealthiest empire of classical antiquity. In terms of land area, it was the Umayyads and their expansion of North Africa and across into southwest Europe, plus their annexation of the former Sasanian Persian lands that now made their empire the largest that the world had ever seen. The Umayyads would always be controversial heads of the Islamic Caliphate due to their opulent and tolerant attitudes. But some may argue that this is the openness that allowed the Caliphate to prosper, with there being great advances in academia and modernisation of the state which gathered knowledge and information from the lands that it occupied, not least of all with its new centre within the lands of Syria, previously belonging to the Byzantines, who were predominantly Christians. So the Umayyads had to embrace the Christians as a valuable part of their population. It does seem that conversion to Islam was encouraged and even rewarded, especially in relation to taxation. The Umayyads were enjoying a period of renewed authority under the Caliph Abd al-Malik, who had overseen the victories over the Zubayrids in the Hijaz before reworking his authority over the traditionally pro-Alid territories of Iraq who had been weakened during their conflicts with the fundamentalists Harijites. A concerted effort was made by Abd al-Malik to establish a Muslim identity on his lands with the iconic Islamic shrine called the Dome of the Rock being completed in Jerusalem and the gold dinar replacing the Byzantine gold solidus as the main coinage of Syrian lands, the heartlands of Umayyad commerce. A new distribution of weights and measures was issued to standardise trade, which had always been a positive move for any trading nation. Arabic was promoted as the language of Islam throughout the Caliphate in order to prevent misinterpretation of the Quran. And this is why we see so many non-Arabian Islamic countries using Arabic as their official language in the modern world. The Caliph Muawiyah had attempted to besiege the Byzantine capital of Constantinople unsuccessfully during his own tenure as the leader of the Caliphate back in the 670s. But now the Umayyads were at the apogee of their expansion and under the Caliph Suleiman ibn Abd al-Malik, who as his name would suggest was the son of Abd al-Malik. A renewed offensive was directed towards the Byzantines. 
The first siege was instigated by the Arab acquisition of the naval power at Alexandria in Egypt, which the Arabs would use against the Byzantines themselves. On the first occasion, the Byzantines would defend themselves by using an incendiary weapon which has been given the name Greek fire. Greek fire would have been shot by a siphon towards the Arabs' acquired ships and it would have been made up from a combination of pitch, possibly with sulphur and quicklime. This is sometimes seen as a revolutionary weapon, but incendiary projectile weapons were not a new thing. We can see evidence of such weapons dating all the way back to the Siege of Lachish, used by the Assyrians in the 8th century BCE. It was the fact that they were a major factor in the outcome that is more interesting to military historians. On the second occasion, the Byzantines had been so weakened and the Umayyads had become so strong that Constantinople genuinely feared conquest and prepared for a total defence of itself with all able men brought to arms and all others expelled from the city. Resources were stockpiled in anticipation of another siege. The city walls were reinforced and upon arrival, the Umayyads sought to build a second line of contravallation walls to keep supporters of Constantinople out. The city was under intense siege again, in a similar fashion to how the Romans under Julius Caesar besieged the Gallic city of Elysia under Vercingetorix. The difference between Elysia and Constantinople is that Constantinople sits on a coast and to prevent support via sea is not as simple as building a wall of contravallation. This time the use of incendiary Greek fire was expected but the defection of Coptic Christians who had travelled alongside the Umayyads was not and it was the betrayal of these Arab allies that left the Muslim invaders out in the cold and isolated with depleting resources. The Byzantines had held out, and the Umayyads were forced to retreat. Now, we were talking about the apogee there of um, Umayyad expansion or Arab expansion, Uh, but um, with every apogee there has to be a fall and um the roman empire is one of those wonders of history where we look at and, and we we're, we're just marveled by the splendor of the uh, of, of what they achieved and but there came a point where fortunes changed and let's analyze that now when we look at the second century when the roman empire was its absolute uh, peak but what happened and um, what caused the peak to come to an end. Antoninus Pius had given the best of his attention to Marcus Aurelius, believing that it would be Marcus Aurelius who would take over. When Antoninus Pius died in 161 at the ripe old age of 74, it would have been natural for Marcus Aurelius to accede to the imperial throne. However, Marcus Aurelius decided that he wanted to co-rule the empire alongside a man called Lucius Verus. On the face of it, it may seem that Marcus Aurelius was intimidated by the role. 
the legacy that Marcus Aurelius tells us something different. Marcus Aurelius is described as an icon of Stoicism, which is a method of thinking that gained academic traction after the lifetime of Socrates, the ancient Greek philosopher from the 5th century BCE. In a nutshell, this means that he lived his life believing that he was just one part of a big natural picture and that his biggest contribution would be to fit in with the natural order of things, so his recommendation that Lucius Verus rule the empire alongside him, in his mind, was for the good of the empire, because as a Stoic, he would have believed that his own personal desires were secondary to the needs of the empire. The concept of dual emperors is not as bizarre as it might initially seem to us. Back in the days of the Republic, Rome had traditionally allocated duties in twos, such as there being two consuls and two censors. Even during the years of the Empire, emperors would often adopt two successors, such as when Emperor Claudius adopted Nero to rule alongside his own son Britannicus. It's just that when push came to shove, one of the men would take all the power, sometimes finding a way to make his potential co-ruler disappear. On this occasion, Marcus Aurelius would want to do things in what he believed to be the correct way. Lucius Verus did not have to wait long before he had to spring into action. On the death of Antoninus Pius, Parthia decided that they'd had enough of the peace and deposed the pro-Roman king of Armenia in favour of their own choice of ruler. Even though Lucius Verus was successful in reversing this sequence of events, after he left, the Parthians simply put their own ruler back again. The point is that although Lucius Verus is often overlooked in favour of the more well-known Marcus Aurelius, Lucius Verus and his generals successfully pushed into Parthian territory all the way down to Tessiphon. This was the first time that this had been achieved since the reign of Trajan. It wasn't Parthians who drove the Romans out of Parthian territory in the Near East in the year 165, but plague. The plague that may have broke out among the Roman army could have happened while they were attempting to besiege the Parthian city of Seleucia. But this particular plague, which could have been a deadly strain of smallpox or measles, seemed to be very contagious as it spread through the Roman legions, right the way back through to the legions in European lands all the way back to Gaul. We now call this plague the Antonine Plague, after the Antonine dynasty of Rome, who were the current set of rulers. There is also some speculation that Romans visited China during the mid-160s, as referenced by Chinese texts. And there are also mentions of plague in those texts. But we can still only speculate about the specific nature of this plague. Incidentally, while this is possibly the first time that a Roman embassy was sent to China, this certainly wasn't the first interaction between Rome and China. The Emperor Tiberius, well over a hundred years previous, tried to put restrictions on silk trade within the empire, fearing 
that it would have a negative impact on the textile industry within the Roman Empire itself. The spread of the Antonine Plague was very likely encouraged by the fact that Roman legions were required to relocate to the Danube River, where Germans were crossing over into lands understood to be on the Roman side of their border in the past. The Romans and the Germans had enjoyed a degree of stability in their relationship with each other during the reign of Antoninus Pius, and speculation exists as to why the German invasion of the Roman borderlands happened now. The Parthians took their opportunity possibly challenging the new emperors of Rome, but the Germans waited a few years, so this may not have been the reason for their incursions. Possibly population pressures are responsible, but we're not completely sure. Regardless, it was this urgency that caused the Roman legions to be recalled from the Near East, bringing the Antonine Plague with them that would go on to kill millions of Romans, including the Emperor Lucius Verus in 169, leaving Marcus Aurelius to rule alone. If Marcus Aurelius was considering a more diplomatic solution before the death of Lucius Verus and the deaths of many legionaries, then he changed his mind when the Germans continued to cross the Danube. One of the main German tribes involved in the push into Roman territory were the Marcomanni, and so this name was used to describe the series of conflicts called the Marcomannic Wars. Possibly as many as 20,000 Romans died on a disastrous campaign to push the Germans back across the Danube, and this would only serve to make the Marcomannic Wars drag out throughout the 170s. The German tribes from the area of Pannonia had settled into some areas of northern Italy, and others had made incursions into the Balkans. The Romans had not been in such turmoil for many decades. Reports of an uprising in the province of Egypt and a challenge to the position of emperor by a Roman governor from the eastern provinces called Arvidius Cassius. Despite all of these challenges, somehow Marcus Aurelius was able to overcome them all one by one. Arvidius Cassius was murdered by one of his own centurions and in the final years of the 170s, Marcus Aurelius was able to push many of the German tribes back across the Danube, where he followed them and occupied their own territory, threatening to annex their lands. Not bad considering that the Germans were doing the same thing to the Romans at the start of the same decade. It was in the year 180, while Marcus Aurelius was in the city of Vindabona on the river Danube, that he would die of natural causes at the age of 58. Vindabona is the modern city of Vienna, the capital of Austria. He would be succeeded as the Roman Emperor by his son Commodus, who was just 18 years old and had been declared as a co-ruler alongside his father some four years earlier. Commodus would make peace with the Germans, ending the Marcomannic Wars. The period of the five good emperors is not known as the period of the six good emperors, which gives us a bit of a clue about the reign of Commodus.
He was a young man and Marcus Aurelius had not adopted a co-ruler. The young man did not adjust well to the conspiracies that can often surround a new emperor, especially a young one, and was rather despotic in his response. Then we see something from Commodus that we hadn't really seen since the first century in the likes of Nero, with an insistence on performing as a gladiator and an attempt to rename Rome, the 12 months of the calendar and the Roman military legions, among other things, after himself. String together this megalomania with the execution of a number of senators who both may and may not have been conspiring to dethrone him, and the end of Commodus's reign may have been predictable. A Praetorian guard prefect called Letus may have been fearing that his fortune might be heading the same way as one of his predecessors, Tigidius Perennis, who was executed by his own troops at the command of Commodus. Letus took the initiative to make the first move, and on New Year's Eve, 192. The plan was to poison Commodus with the help of his mistress Marcia. However, the poison made Commodus sick, and he vomited the poison before having a bath. While in his bath, Commodus's own personal trainer, a man called Narcissus strangled him in one of the more shameful deaths of a Roman emperor. Now that was from three years ago, but now we're going to go back five years to our very first volume. And we were talking about things to do with the Paleolithic and, uh, and prehistory. One of the wonders of prehistory is the monument in Great Britain called Stonehenge. And we spoke briefly about this during volume one. So let's go back and listen. There appears to be no doubt that humans were very active in and around the area of Avebury and Stonehenge for most of the fourth and third millenniums BCE. There are various evidences of earthworks, woodworks and stoneworks that appear to date back to this period. The first evidence of construction around the Stonehenge site is believed to be in or around 3100 BCE and it is not the stones that we can see today because they were erected many hundreds of years later. Around 30 miles south of the Neolithic constructions near Avebury at what would later be Stonehenge, a circular ditch was dug into the earth with the resulting chalk that was used to form a bank alongside the ditch. Henges are known to have the ditch inside the bank, but in Stonehenge's case the bank is inside the ditch leading to one of the most famous fascinating facts about Stonehenge not being a true henge. It is true, however, that human bones were buried 
at the site as well as the bones of deer and oxen. It also doesn't appear that these bones were just buried, suggesting that some of the bones were in some way looked after. If you recall, the burials at West Kennet Long Barrow were also allowed to be accessed, suggesting that this is not just a standard burial, or not just a burial carried out in a standard fashion. It is not until around 600 years later that we start seeing the emergence of the famous stoneworks that we know of today at the site. The very first stones thought to have been erected at the Stonehenge site are the blue stones. What we actually mean by the term blue stone is not that the stones were blue, but that they were not the later and more iconic and famous sarsen stones that we instantly recognise due to their balancing tricks. The blue stones are the ones which scientists talk about as the ones transported to the site from many, many miles away. So let us clarify this for all of you who are confused by what we are describing at this stage. Sometime during the first half of the 3rd millennium BCE, it is believed that a ring of comparatively small blue stones were erected at Stonehenge. These are the stones that many claim were brought over from the modern country of Wales, also on the island of Great Britain, as this seems to be the nearest feasible natural quarry for the stones. If they did come from Wales, then they would have had to have been transported between 150 and 200 miles. Some scientists have suggested that glacial activity could be responsible. If you remember back in episode 8 of the podcast where we discussed the ice ages, we described how expanded glaciers had the power to transport huge stones from one place to another, leaving the rock in an unusual place on the landscape. However, many scholars do not believe that the blue stones were transported this way and prefer to believe that humans transported the stones across the land themselves. Now, each stone would have weighed several tonnes, but we must not forget the power of human resource, because if we go back in time over 5,000 years, then we believe that humans had successfully, physically moved and erected the stones at Gobekli Tepe in modern Turkey, and those stones were significantly more massive. Now there are even those that challenge the theory that the stones were transported from Wales to Wiltshire, stating that none of the sites in Wales where the blue stones could have come from show any signs of prehistoric quarrying. So this could be true. However, there has been yet another study published in 2018 that tells us some very important information about some of the cremated individuals exhumed at Stonehenge. Strontium isotope analysis of these bones suggests that some of the individuals may have originated from modern Welsh lands, demonstrating a connection between the origin of the cremated individuals and the origin of the blue stones. What we don't have is categorical evidence of where the blue stones came from and how they were transported, but it is a popular theory 
to suppose that many humans found a way to drag them all the way from Wales over to Wiltshire to construct a monument at Stonehenge. It may be that these blue stones could have been part of an earlier monument, as some scientists have suggested that they were quarried a few hundred years before becoming part of the Stonehenge monument. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast magazine. And um, if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support the podcast, then why not consider clicking on our Patreon link at the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and making a monthly contribution. When you do that, you'll become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you'll qualify for all the wonderful gifts and rewards that we advertise there. Now, this week, we're going to welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati, Matthew Thomas, Malcolm Quentin, Chris Watson, Cassie, Katia Radkovich, and Paul Smith. Thank you, one and all, for uh, agreeing to support the podcast. It really, really does help. Uh, and it does make a difference. And it's also going to help me going forward as well to get more rhythm back into the podcast as well. So thank you so much. If you want to access uh, bonus material and uh, you want to listen to the podcast ad-free, then subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Just click the link in the podcast description. And if you would like to get in touch with the podcast, then drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com listener messages and reviews i'm gonna go to the reviews first uh, this week because this is a very interesting review from mpkxd brucker um from norway um and he's just put didn't turn out as planned i followed this podcast almost since its inception in 2018 and have listened to every episode to date i'm deeply appreciative for the fantastic work chris has put into this podcast it's therefore with regret that i say that i've come to a point where i'm considering to leave the podcast for the past couple of years i've been expecting chris to make an announcement of the kind that he did in the early november episode i do believe this is a bit self-inflicted as the deep out of the podcast has spun out of control rather than sticking to the original plan and the originally intended detail level and perhaps be done with the full story by now we're now only in volume four after five plus years volume one lasted for about a half a year and had 24 episodes perfect length volume two finished almost a year later and had 37 episodes already significantly longer than the projected 30 episodes volume three spun completely out of control with 80 episodes and lasted nearly two years. More than two years later, we're still in the midst of Volume 4 and it's evident to me that this podcast will end up like A Song of Fire and Ice. Or A Song of Ice and Fire, sorry, I misread that. It will probably never complete. It would be far better to finish on an intermediate detail level and skipping all but the absolutely most 
iconic battles as separate episodes. The endless number of battle episodes, in most cases consisting mostly of tedious repetition and background information and not too much about the actual battle, is in my opinion one of the main reasons why the podcast has dragged out to the extent it has. Also the listener commissioned episodes. After finishing the main timeline up to today there would be plenty of opportunity to go back and revisit battles, profiles and events which there wasn't room for going for doing a deep dive on in the main podcast so to finish all the best to you Chris and keep up the excellent work I sincerely hope you will eventually finish the whole story but I think you need to lower your ambitions and have a realistic hope of achieving it um well look thank you and it's not many people that would that would be uh sort of brave enough to to really sort of call out the elephant in the room, I suppose. So um, I, I really do think that you've succinctly put over exactly what some other listeners may be feeling. So th- uh, I, I appreciate everything that you've written. I do want to just respond to that by by saying um, that in between, reading between the lines, I think some people are reading between the lines a little bit too much. Um, what I did say in uh, my last episode when I spoke of the state of the podcast was sincere. And I meant um, in that respect that the History of the World podcast is a very important and fundamental part of my life now to the point where I'm actually negotiating with my employers about reducing my working activity so that I can actually spend more professional time on the History of the World podcast. So it very much is, it very much is part of my future plans. And um, I will just respond to the... um, to the to the points made about the episodes extending it's it's i've always been in control of what i'm doing with this podcast and it's not it's not spiraling out of control in the way that it might seem to be i know you're um saying that you know volume 1 was 25 episodes volume 4 is going to be about 100 episodes i'll, I'll be honest with you it's going to be about 100 episodes by the time that we've explored southeast asia Um, the Pacific, Easter Island, of course, the Maori of New Zealand, and then we've got to go to the Americas. So, But it was always going to be about 100 episodes anyway. Volume 5 will be shorter, probably between 60 and 70 episodes, really because we're dealing with a different time frame. So what we have to understand with Volume 3 and Volume 4 is that we're talking um, about large periods of time. So um, you know, almost a millennium in each case, and with a lot of written history, and a lot of the battle episodes are addressing some of the societies that we might otherwise not be talking about. So I think that they're an integral part of the volume. And uh, well, I do see your perspective, but there is a counter argument from me about some of the points that you made. Um, I do you know I do still know what my plan of action is and um, there's every intention of uh, completing it in terms of the listener episodes um, yeah that did get a bit out of control and I had to do something about that I had to change the thresholds by which I was able to offer that reward so that's something I've already done Um, and you know, I, I'm not familiar with this with a song of ice and fire. You'll have to forgive me, but I guess that that's something that started out um, with good intentions and went awry, perhaps. But um, 
listen, I hope that I've given you a very um, sincere response to that review and thank you for writing it. I think you've um, I think you've covered a lot of things that maybe are concerning a lot of our regular listeners. So thank you. Um, moving on, fun and interesting from Daddy Oroks. Uh, from the United States of America has put I enjoy the podcast after my American ears adjusted to the accent it is very knowledgeable and interesting I listen every day on my route as I deliver the mail thank you for your time in giving us this podcast moving on now to the listener messages Um, Paul Smith um, has written in and said hi Chris I discovered your podcast when my brother-in-law recommended it I'm on the summary episodes of volume three after starting back in July lately I've been driving a long distance every week and your podcast is a delight thank you just thank you I marvel at your work very kind um, Alexander Manti um, has put um Dear Chris, I am Alex from Germany. I have a question on your great podcast episode on Mesopotamia. As of minute six, you say, Harari, this is uh, Yuval Noah Harari, who who wrote the book Sapiens. Um, He um, he says, Harari is an Israeli historian who wrote the book Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, which was published in 2014. The book itself comes across in a very sober and pragmatic style, but one point that Harari makes is that the social dynamic of a group of human individuals changes once that group number rises to the realms of 150 individuals and beyond. What did you mean by the book comes across in a very sober and pragmatic style, but one point that Harari makes is that the social dumb blah, blah, blah. Are you making a contrast between the overall sober and pragmatic style of the book and the argument that followed, which deviates from that general sober and pragmatic style? Um, uh, The interpretation of the sentence in this context is that while the book maintains a serious and practical tone throughout, Harari introduces a concept or argument regarding the impact of group size on social dynamics. This implies that Harari discusses how the behaviour, interactions and overall dynamics within a group of individuals undergo a transformation once the group surpasses a certain number, potentially around 150 individuals. The sentence suggests that this particular point may involve analysing the effects of group size on social structures, relationships and patterns of behaviour. It is a departure from the overall sober and pragmatic style of the book as it delves into the realm of social dynamics and potentially incorporates theoretical or speculative elements to explain the observed changes in group behaviour. In summary, the sentence introduces a contrasting point within the book, highlighting a specific argument made by Harari about the influence of group size on social dynamics, which differs from the sober and pragmatic style maintained throughout the rest of the book. Or did you mean something else? Thanks for your feedback in advance. Kind regards, Alex. Um, Yes, I did mean something else. I'm sorry to say after you wrote all that. Um, uh, Basically, yes, I I didn't mean that um, Harari's observation was a contrast to the rest of his book. Uh, You know, perhaps um, my English literacy is not... um, is not perfect in that case. I think sometimes I'm guilty of maybe um, getting a few... You know, I'm not not an educated... um, you know, I'm not an educated writer, and, and maybe I miss uh, I miswrote that that line. I didn't mean for it to come across that way, but anyway, <laughs> interesting to read. Um, moving on, uh, Nico Share and Mouse 
has put uh, Chris, we live off grid here in Arizona, so we understand when things happen, they can really create havoc for you. Please note, we will always wait for your next release whenever you can put out the episode. The podcasts are the best. Your context is so easy to take in and understand. Um, well, that's that's in uh, contrast to the last email that I just wrote. Uh, the publication, whether it's a magazine release or one you've worked so hard on and put your heart and soul into. Blessing and thank you for bringing history alive, Nico and Mouse. Um, next one is from Rabbi, who's put in, uh, uh, who's put in an email. Listening to your podcast, it is brilliant. Uh, currently, I'm in volume two, episode 16, and you said that only one person who reviewed you, Melissa Weber, um, I have always reviewed you and followed you since the start. Not sure what is going on here. Anyway, support from Montreal, Canada. I think that was a very early episode, Rabbi. So like things have changed considerably since volume two, episode 16. We're sort of probably, we're almost five years beyond that point now, so I wouldn't necessarily worry if uh, if I'm saying that there was no reviews back then there's plenty now um, Greg Barnett has written in and said hi I wrote and produced this radio drama about an Englishman caught up in the events of Agincourt um, Agincourt is track 20 on the Flat White album by Greg Barnett it is not on all streaming platforms um, as it's over 10 minutes uh, here is the video, largely composed via AI image generation. Um, well, I posted this on the Facebook page, but it's a wonderful piece of work, Greg. Um, really is quite, um, you know, you're clearly very, very talented. And the AI image, uh, the AI imagery is something I've, I've sort of newly discovered more recently. Um, it really does do the work justice and... I think if you, you know, if you get over the fact that some of it may not be entirely accurate, just just get lost in this wonderful piece of work and, and enjoy the atmosphere of it. It really is a good one. And I've, um, I've posted it on the social media pages. But if anyone else is interested, then just please drop me a line and I'll send you the link. Um, I do recommend it. Malcolm Quentin has written in and said, I am from British Columbia, Canada, but currently in Colorado, United States. I know I love the History of the World podcast in that your ability for telling a story is contrary to how history has been traditionally taught with regurgitating names, dates and places. The History of the World podcast is in the company of other such exceptional podcasts as The History of Rome by Mike Duncan, The British History podcast by Jamie Jeffers and The History of Germany podcast by Travis Dow. I have no doubt that authoring a podcast every week with such tremendous detail is a significant effort, but what makes your podcast so great truly is your ability to connect the data points to provide context within an intriguing story that helps my understanding and makes me want to learn more. I am up to the unscripted episodes of Volume 2, but admittedly I have listened to each episode as many as 10 times. Wow. I have listened to other history podcasts for many years now, notably the ones above, and feel compelled to reach out to acknowledge the greatness of your podcast. It made me laugh when one history teacher started uh, starting a History of Greece podcast, proclaimed that if an attorney, Jamie Jeffers, may have a good podcast, uh, 
then he could have a podcast too. Even worse, I cringed at another history teacher very arrogantly proclaiming his podcast on the history of France would be exceptional for the same reason. Therefore, discovering a podcast such as yours that encourages me to listen over and over again is so rewarding that, yes, I've decided to join the Illuminati. You have earned it and my respect. And I love how you encourage us always to be good to ourselves and to one another at the end of each episode. Be well, Chris. That's um, that's Jerry Springer, isn't it, who, who, who does that? Be, um, be, good to, be good to yourself and each other. Um I just say be good, Malcolm. I think anyway. Be well, Chris. Anyway, Malcolm, listen. I'm I'm making fun of your of your very very complimentary email, and I apologise for that. Um, to be put in the same context as those other podcasts that you mentioned, very very humbling. Um, yes, ultimately, I think the the judges of whether you've any good at podcasting or not as the audience it's as simple as that if the audience don't like it then you're no good at it if the audience like it then maybe you have got potential that's my gen that's my genuine point of view um we've got uh Yevgeny Antonov who's written in and says hello again Chris I hope this finds you well before I start telling you how wonderful your podcast is I shall tell you a few things about myself In the early 80s, when I was but a baby, the books about prehistoric fauna, illustrated by a Czech paleo-artist, Zdenek Burian, I remember paging for hours through the colourful depictions of dinosaurs and our own ancestors, I was about six-ish, when my father read to me The Quest for Fire as a bedtime story, after he has adamantly refused to read it to me for a third time in a row. It has become the very first book that I've read all by myself. I guess I've never grown out of that boyish fascination about prehistory. It was no surprise, therefore, that I was instantly captivated by volume one of your podcast. That was the most brilliant clickbait that I have ever seen. I have discovered your podcast earlier this year, 2023, and I continue to listen to it. The time length of one episode is more or less equal to the time that uh, drive to and from work. So I keep a rate of one and a half to two episodes of workday. Yes, I take an indulgence on weekends. My enthusiasm has lowered a bit during the third season when history has become much denser with events and I was lost in them. I, however, have quickly realised that you keep telling the story of exactly the same events over and over again, presenting them from different angles. Now from the point of view of the Persians, then from the point of view of the Greeks, here from the point of view of the Romans, there from a point of view of the Carthaginians. So I've quickly gotten to grips with the tales. You are doing an excellent job here and I hope you'll be able to keep up even when the density increases during the Middle Ages. I am somewhat anxious about how it will be taken in the period of modern history but I'm certain that a resolute man as you will uh, will find a way. I have been born and raised in the city of Rostov-on-Don in the southwest of modern Russia. You have mentioned our city in the episode concerning uh, the practices of skull trepanation among historic uh, or prehistoric, I should say, and ancient cultures. It was, by the way, a historically peculiar area, and I'm curious if you will mention it in the later episodes. I have, however, moved away in the late 90s to pursue the opportunities of study and work. I have spent almost 10 years in Poland. I have spent the last 16 years in Czechia. 
Additionally, the work that I do has given me many opportunities to travel around the world. Such a long exposure to the different cultures has helped me to develop a keen interest in languages. I have a wonderful opportunity to learn and speak fluently in five languages and to understand a couple of others. And I hope that that is not the end of it. Right now, I'm listening through the summary of the Roman culture, and I'm very much looking forward towards the Middle Ages, my second most fa- uh, favourite period of the world's history. I wish to keep your, um, I wish you to keep your vigour in search and preparation of the material, and to keep your willingness to present the wonders of the history to us all, your faithful listeners, staying at your service. Thank you very much, uh, Yevgeny. Um, Yes, um, it sounds like you've um, you've had a very interesting life yourself, and maybe you should consider podcasting about your experiences. That that could be interesting. David Peace has written in and said, "Hi, Chris. I just heard uh, your announcement of your upcoming nuptials. Um, a hearty congratulations from Chicago. All the best. Uh, well, thank you." Um, I'm not going to go too deeply into all that. Anyway, thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. I promise you that you'll get another episode this weekend and it will be about uh, Ashikaga uh, Shogunate of Japan and it will round off our series of medieval Japan before we move on to a couple of episodes about Korea. And we're really going to hit Korea hard. We're really going to almost tell the entire story of uh, Korea from prehistory right the way through to the 20th century we're going to do that in this volume uh, and then we'll be moving on to China and of course the inevitable um, story of the Mongols all of that to look forward to I can't wait anyway thank you so much for listening this week it's been a long one uh, probably I felt guilty and had to make it up to you uh, but until the weekend until then be good the history of the world podcast Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the History of the World Podcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.